0: Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. I hope you guys are excited about our new pastor. We are. I've had the privilege this week with my good friend Jeff Montgomery, his son Daniel, Mike Toon, a great friend of mine, and Landon Schlosser. We've been over at their home in Hanford uh, putting texture on the walls and of the garage and, and cleaning it up and painting it. and going to go over tomorrow and he epoxy the floor. I've ordered a big Dallas Cowboy star. He's a Seattle fan. This may be my last sermon. I'm just saying that may not go worth the- <laughs> it. It's, it's, it's been fun, but it's been hot. And I'm um, looking forward to getting that wrapped up and have that ready for them to, to try to move in here in the next week or two. Uh, a lot of con- uh, things going on over there. But anyway, we're in part two uh, of a, just a brief series of messages, The Will of God in Your Life. Pastor Seth began that last week. After being a pastor for 30-plus years, the most frequent discussions I have, if I had to kind of say, well, what are, what are the questions that come to me more than any, than any others? Uh, usually it's a question of the, the end times, the rapture. I, I'm, I love talking about eschatology, the study of end-time events. But also, over the years, I probably had half a hundred discussions about the will of God I mean it's something people want to know about Uh, what is God's will how can I know God's will Uh, how do I discern God's direction how do I know what God wants me to do and I've I've more often than not I just just be I'm frank with people (laughs) and and I'll just tell them flip a coin that's what I do Or the tried and true, any, meeny, miny, mode. that's usually a pretty good way to do it. And uh, well, I hope that's helpful. We're going to go ahead and dismiss in prayer. (laughs) In Psalm chapter 143 and verse 10, David prays a prayer that should be the desire of every Christian. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Now that's just basic life to the believer. Because being a Christian is the affirmation of the Lordship of Christ, right? That's just basic to our Christian walk. Being a Christian is an act of submission to the control and leadership of Christ. Doing doing His will certainly follows that kind of submission. And listen, here's here's something just to kind of fasten in your mind. God's will will always lead you God's way. Psalm 37, verse 23, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he, that is God, delights in his way. When we're walking in submission to the leading of the Spirit of God, God takes great delight when you obey his direction. It brings him delight. You want to delight the Lord? Just do what he says. Now Jesus of course was the ultimate example. Christ alone was the perfect servant's heart. No greater pattern no greater model can be found anywhere for obedience to the will of God than what Jesus himself demonstrated. Jesus at one time in John chapter 4 verse 34 said this, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. And even when He faced the agony of the anticipation of the cross, He never wavered from that commitment, did He? He, he said this Not my will, but thine be done. And Jesus then would teach His followers in Matthew chapter 6 to pray this way. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the rest, what's the next verse? You should know it by heart. Your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is an essential petition of every believer. It's always right to think, God, what is your will in this, this situation? God, what is, it, what is your plan for me right here in this situation? And listen, and I'm going I'm to say something that may strike you as rather harsh, it's not intended to be harsh. But unless there is a desire in you to learn and live in the will of God, it is at the very least questionable whether you are even a Christian at all. If you don't give any thought to knowing and doing God's will and living obediently, you probably need to ask yourself, is my faith real? Because it, it, it should be present in the heart of every born-again believer that I want to do God's will. Like David prayed, teach me to do your will for you're my God. And if you're not searching God's will, if that's not something every day you're going, I want to make sure that I'm walking in God's will. If that is not a concern to you, you need to question whether He's your God or not. But Paul wrote to the the Corinthians. He had started that church. That church really was in an environment of paganism. There was a saying in the first century to Corinthianize because they were so bad. That city was so bad that that term became to mean people who live with all kind of debauchery and sin. Paul started this church and those people were coming out of that paganism. But they were bringing some stuff into the, into the church that was absolutely sinful. Practices that they'd been used to doing, they began to just, it just didn't just drop off. They, they, they just continued to bring some of that in. And Paul had to get pretty stern with them at times. And he's writing to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and listen to this for I fear when I come, he's talking about coming to see them, I shall not find you such as I wish. In other words, I'm hoping that my letter is going to correct this, that you're going to begin to put this sin out of the church. He says, when I come, I I, I shall not find you as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you don't wish. In other words, you don't want me to come in and lower the boom on you. He's basically telling them that. If I come in and you're still doing those things that I wrote you about in my first epistle... We're going to have a face-to-face discussion about this, and, and it ain't going to be pretty. I'm going to get up in your face. And he goes, lest there be contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbiting, whispering, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for the many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced." So Paul says, look, I've told you how you're supposed to live. You know what God's will is for your life. Why are you still living that way? But just a few verses later, listen to how he connects this. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, just a few verses, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you're disqualified and what he's saying there is simply that unless the reality is you don't have Jesus in your life. So you see, that, that kind of calls us up short, doesn't it? It makes us stop and think. If there is not a, a driving desire to do God's will. Listen, we'll never follow God's will unto perfection, right? I mean, just we're, we're sinful people. We have that propensity. It may not be the perfection of your life, but it should be the direction of your life, Right? You're getting more and more obedient. You're, you're, you're loving to do God's will. It is your delight to make sure you're, you're living in the will of God. Folks, living consistent in the known will of God is a legitimate test as to the reality of one's salvation. Jesus calls those who claim to follow Him to answer this very important question. John, excuse me, Luke 6:46, "But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? You see, even Jesus is saying, there's a dichotomy here. You're calling me, Lord, but you don't care about what I tell you to do or not to do. It's a very serious question. The Apostle Peter makes a statement that one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is that his or her life is centered in the will of God. 1 Peter 4, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men. But look, for the what? Will of God. So we ask, what is the will of God? How can I discern the will of God? Well, let's face the facts. First of all, most believers don't struggle to know God's will. Our greatest challenge is to do what we already know. Amen? Most of us already know more of God's will than we are currently living. A married couple was having a somewhat heated discussion about where they would go on their annual vacation. The wife wanted to travel to the west and go out to Hawaii and enjoy the Hawaiian Islands. The the husband, he wanted to go east and see the Holy Land and he's arguing with his wife and trying to sell her on this whole idea you know, just think about it, honey. We can go, we can climb Mount Sinai and shout out the Ten Commandments. She's not impressed. She said, we'd be better off if we just stayed home and kept them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The Bible, the Bible makes some matters explicitly clear when it comes to knowing, without a doubt, what God's will is. I mean, there are many thou shalts and thou shalt nots, Right. They're in there. In those instances, God leaves absolutely no room to question His will. Do this and this and this. Don't do that, that, or that. And He lays it out clearly. For example, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? We are to be people who are committed to being truthful to ourselves. And to others, like David said in Psalm 51.6, Behold, you desire truth from the inward parts, and in the hidden parts you make me to know wisdom. So God says, you need to be honest with yourself. You know you're doing things that are clearly against my will. Why are you praying for me to give you more information when you're not doing what I've already informed you on? Right? Psalm fifty-one. 6 just reminds us that God wants us not just truthful with others, but truthful with ourselves. Pastor Seth last week preached out of 1 Thessalonians 5. It's very clear what God's will is there, isn't it? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Very clear. What is God's will? Rejoice always, Pray without ceasing and be thankful. So are we doing that? Hope we are. You go back one chapter in 1 Thessalonians to chapter 4. Here is what it says. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that means that you're progressively becoming more holy, more more Christ-like, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So. It's clear what God's word is on that. Jesus was talking to somebody uh, and they would actually, they came up to Jesus and they said, what must we do to do the works of God? They want to know what, what does God want from us? You know what Jesus's reply was? Jesus said this, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. You know what God's primary will for humanity is? It's to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, you have yet to believe in Him, put your trust in His Lordship, you don't need to be looking for God's will for anything else, but primarily you need to say, I know it's God's will that I come to Christ. That's essential, folks. It's God's will that man be saved. Paul writes this, in, in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, listen, who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Peter would say this, God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So we can say primarily the first thing that's God's will for humankind is that they repent and they turn to faith in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His payment for their sin, and they embrace him as Lord of their life and they surrender. They, they bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And, and he becomes the Lord of their life. I mean, the scriptures are just filled, folks, with very clear instructions about God's will and what it is. And most of us don't do what we already know. I know I'm among you. I struggle with the same thing. But what about all of the things that's kind of you know in the middle ground? Which, the things that the Bible does not explicitly talk about, how do we how do we discern God's will in those kinds of things? I mean, the Bible doesn't speak explicitly on a lot of things. I mean, for instance, you know this to be true. Some some are against eating certain foods. Our, our Seventh Day Adventist friends, they they will not eat meat. Teresa and I were invited to a potluck at their church one time. Teresa and I went there years ago and sang at a Seventh-day Adventist church, and that's weird to do on a Saturday. But we went on a Saturday, and they had a potluck, and they fed us. And I tell you what, I ate good. Those folks know how to make things without meat. But I went out and killed a chicken afterwards. But I'm, I had to have dessert. But some people are against (laughs) Eating foods or against drinking certain kinds of drink. I mean, some people and I've and I've, I've just had a conversation a few years ago with somebody who don't, we don't even have a TV in our house. They they are against television, while others they'll watch it if the test pattern's the only thing on. You know, they, when, when when we were growing up, my mother let me and my brother watch all the television we wanted, just as long as we didn't turn it on. <laughs> some are against, you know, there's just all kind of stuff. There. Some are against going to movies. And and, and some people think playing certain card games is a sin. I don't know. Some people believe it's a sin to stick leaves in your mouth, set them on fire and blow smoke out your nose. Other people don't have a problem with that, right? Some people think if your hair is too long, it's a sin, unless, of course, you're a woman, then it's a sin if you cut your hair. And they also feel it's a sin for a woman to wear makeup. Others feel it would be a greater sin if they didn't. So, I mean, there's just all, all this stuff out there. I'm in so much trouble. But there are a lot of things like that that just sort of enter into the area where Scripture really doesn't have anything to say and so we're kind of left to discern what God's will is concerning a particular thing. A young man had been appointed a brand new president of a bank and he approached one of the esteemed chairmen of the board who had been on the board for many, many years and he wanted to ask him for some advice and and he said, can you give me a little bit of advice as, as to being the new bank president? And he said, yeah, two words, <laughs> right decisions. And the young man said, well, that's really helpful. I appreciate that. But yeah, you have, you have could you be a little more specific? How do I make right decisions? And the old man just turned and said, you know what? Experience. The young man told him, well, that's just my point. I, uh, I'm new to this job. How do I get experience? The old man said, making wrong decisions. <laughs> <laughs> We don't want to make wrong decisions, do we? We want to to get it right as best we can. Now, I came across some of the following principles years ago. These are not mine. I stole them. I think it was sometime back in the 80s. I put them in my file. They were so helpful. And I took and I I put them there. And uh, I just thought, those things are very, very practical and so I don't even remember if it was Warren Wiersbe or John MacArthur or Swindoll. One of those guys I listened to on the radio must have been preaching them or I read them in a book. I don't remember exactly where I got them, but I, I, I made note of them and I put them in my files. And I'm, I want to share those with you now. I guess because I think they're extremely helpful. And I'm going to give you a, a one-word principle followed by a brief question. And then I want you to write the scripture reference down. Okay? There are going to be ten of them. We're going to move rapidly through these principles. Okay, I'm calling this 10 Principles for Discerning God's Will with Ease. They're all going to begin with the letter E. Okay? The first principle to discerning God's will with ease is expedience. The question is, is will this thing that I'm going to do be spiritually profitable? Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, there is your reference. Now, I've given you a principle, a question, and a reference. Hope you're taking notes. To write this down. First Corinthians 6:12. All things are lawful unto me, Paul writes, but all things are not expedient. This word literally means to my advantage. They are not to my spiritual advantage. They don't profit me. The new international version uses they are not beneficial. The King James says expedient. The new American standard says, but all things are not profitable. So you ask this question, will it be spiritually profitable for me? You ask yourself the question that Paul is posing right there. Will my doing this enhance my spiritual life? Will my doing this enhance godliness in my life? Will it be profitable for me? Will it be to my advantage? In other words, I'm I'm not looking at life from the standpoint of can I do this and get away with it? No, I'm looking at life, can I do this and have it increase my godliness? Will it be spiritually profitable for me? That's the principle of expedience. Is it expedient for my spiritual benefit? Is it it going to help me? Principle number two, write down the word enslavement. Here's the question, will it bring me into bondage? Can it bring me into bondage? Now, back to verse 12. He says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are beneficial or expedient. All things are lawful for me, but look at the rest of the verse, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The point here is that we should never allow a non-moral thing to become our master, right? We should never be the master of something that's, that's, that's non-moral. In Psalm chapter 8, it, it, it speaks of God and His relationship to His creation, Chiefly man. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 8, verse 4 What is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all the sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. In other words, he's saying, God created man and gave him dominion over creation. We are like sovereign over the creation. We are to take care of it and tend to it. But isn't it amazing, folks, how mankind often yields up his sovereignty over the created things to do stupid little things? I mean, how many people do you know have turned into absolute blithering idiots because they can't control what comes out of a grape? They've given up, they've given up. We're, we're supposed to have dominion over those things, but we give ourselves over to those things. Drugs. I mean, and invented through science by man for the benefit of those who need them, but they can also become the master of so many men and women. And we, we yield up our sovereignty to some of the craziest things. And there, and there are just a whole lot of them. We're not going to try to get into that, but there are a lot of things that can enslave us that come from creation, which God designed to be ruled by us. And so we ask this, Will this thing that I'm going to do, I'm praying about doing, will it put me into bondage? Does it have the potential to make me its slave? And if it does, it is obviously not God's will, right? Number three, moving through these rapidly. Principle number three, edification. Here's your question, will it build me up? The word edify means to build a house. We look at a structure, we go, that's, a, that's an impressive edifice. It's that word. Will it, will it build me up? Will it get me on a path to greater spiritual maturity? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 is the passage reference I want you to write by that. Paul again says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Same idea that he had before. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So we ask this question, will this add to my life? Will this thing increase my spiritual stability? Will it give me strength and and help me move me on towards maturity? Paul would write in in, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, let all things be done unto edification. 2 Corinthians 12, 19, we do all things, dearly beloved, to build you up. So you ask the question, if I do this, if I go this route praying about God's will, will this build me up? Will it add to my spiritual growth? We need to ask those questions. If I do this will it build me up? Will it strengthen me? Will it move me towards Christ's likeness towards greater spiritual maturity? That's the principle of edification. Number four, write the word excess. This is sort of the negative side of the two we just mentioned. You ask this question, will this slow me down in the race? Will it slow me down? Hebrews chapter 12 is your reference, verse 1, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 9.24 that that we're running a race, and now the writer of Hebrews says we're running a race. But the key is this, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Now the weight is different than from the sin, isn't it? He's speaking of two different things. The weight is different than the sin. Now the word race is, is the word agon, from which we get the English word agony. Uh, This demands a a grueling life of faith. It it, it requires determination. It requires perseverance, self-discipline. And and in order to do that, he says, we have to lay aside every weight as well as the sin. The word weight, onkos in the Greek, simply means bulk. It, it, It isn't necessarily sin. It's just needless bulk, something that weighs us down, diverts our priorities, takes our attention kind of sucks our energy and dampens our enthusiasm for the things of God. Maybe just, let me give you an example. You, some of you are probably watching the Olympics. An athlete who's going to compete, for instance, in, in say, the 100-meter race, he go, what if, what if he went out and got drunk and then comes in and tries to run? He would be running without having set aside sin. I mean, he sinned against his own body and it just sort of sort of sucked out his strength. And that would be sinning against your body. But what if, let's, let's assume this, let's assume he trained perfectly, he's in excellent physical condition, but when he came to the race to compete, he decided to put on combat boots and carry a backpack. Now, that wouldn't be sinful, it'd just be really ridiculous, wouldn't it? That would be unnecessary bulk. So folks, there are just a lot of things that could constitute bulk, legalism, ceremonialism, needless wastes of time that just sort of suck your energy and fouls up your priorities. So you ask yourself this very simple question, will it slow me down in the spiritual race? Anything that impinges upon my effectiveness in serving my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I won't do that. It might be something that in and of itself is not evil, but if it becomes needless weight for me to bear, then I need to say, that's not God's will for my life. That's the principle of excess. Number five, the principle of equivocation. If you can spell it, you can correct my notes. The principle of equivocation, it simply means to lie or falsify something. So here's your question. Will it hypocritically cover my sin? If I do this, will it simply be a way of masking over my sin? Am I doing it in the name of freedom, my freedom in Christ? All things are lawful for me, right? Paul said that several times. So am I doing it in the name of freedom? I'm really kind of, but really in the honesty of my own heart I'm kind of pandering to my own evil desires. we got to ask that question. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he said, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, you have freedom in Christ Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Peter echoes the same idea in 1 Peter 2.16 as free, we're free in Christ, yet not using our liberty or freedom as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. We're slaves to Christ We're not slaves to that thing we want to do and then cloak it with something. And we say, well, I'm free in Christ to do that. Folks, it's a very common thing to turn our Christian liberty into license. You have to guard against that. God made all of the herbs of the field. Listen, and this substance is just a herb, so it can't be bad. I'll just use it. I'll just just take that. God made it right? If you're using your freedom to cover up your own evil desires, that is not God's will, right? So what are our questions so far? Is something really beneficial? Does it really benefit me spiritually? Is this something that will lead me into bondage? Is this something that builds me up? Is this something that is unnecessary bulk or or is it something helpful? Am I doing this while cloaking over my evil desires? So you need to look at your motives, right? Number six, principle number six, write down the word encroachment. Here's your question. Will it violate the Lordship of Christ in my life? That means you're encroaching on the sovereignty of Christ in your life. Every Christian should live in submission to the Lordship of Christ. Can I at least get an amen? Yes, every Christian, you call him Lord, Lord, do what he says, right? That's simple. But not all believers can agree 100% on what that means in every single area of our lives. And I get that. Some people think the Lord says no to this. Other people think the Lord says, hey, that's okay. Some people think the Lord says it's a sin to do this. Some people think, well, I'm okay with that. There are people who sense the Lordship of Christ in, in different ways. As as an illustration of this, this this is the passage of Scripture I want you to write down if you're taking notes. Romans 14, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak only eats vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person, now we're not talking about food, but one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. In other words, that's a lot of scripture, whatever may be the restrictions in a Christian's life, he does them because he believes that the That's what the Lord wants. That's why some people are adamant we we can't worship on Sunday, we must do it on Saturday. That's their prerogative. They esteem one day over the next. But you know as well as I do that we are supposed to worship God every day. We we always, we we get up in the morning and and we should be thanking God for the new day and our whole life. So, one day is is okay with with me for another day. It It doesn't really matter. Now, you ask that question, will this violate my understanding of the lordship of Christ? If I choose to do something it must fit within what I believe is the will of Christ my Lord, right? I don't want to violate that. To violate that in my mind would be to take control of my life to usurp the lordship of Christ. That's that's the principle of encroaching number 7. Example write the word example. Here's your question. Will it help other Christians by its example? Your your, your text that I want you to write is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9 to 13. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge Eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, we don't have this problem in our world today. You're missing a point if you think this is about food today. There was an issue in that day in, in the early church people were coming out of paganism and there was there was meat in the in the meat markets and they wouldn't shop there if they knew that that had been sacrificed to an idol they think it tainted the meat. And some people would was very offended that you would take and eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Others would go Christ is bigger than anything and if I give him thanks I can eat this and they were right. But the issue was that they would do it in disregard to a younger believer, to a weaker Christian, to a one who's, whose level of maturity hadn't gotten there and it would be an offense to them. And so there was this principle, this overarching principle and Paul kind of alludes to that in, in Romans chapter 14. I know I'm giving you a lot of Scriptures. There's 31,000 verses in the Bible. I'm only using part of them. But in Romans 14, beginning in verse 19, therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace And the things by which one may edify another. There is the principle. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure. There is that idea again. All things are lawful. But it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbled or is offended or is made weak. So you just ask the question, do I want a weak, weaker Christians to follow my pattern here? This is the principle of example. I, I can give you an illustration of this. It's uh, something that happened years ago. Uh, Teresa and I, uh, early in our marriage, we lived in this, this house out in the country, Joaquina, and uh, we had band practice in one of the rooms. We only had one little baby at the time, and so this back bedroom became our band room. And uh, my brother and our drummer neither one of them were, were believers, and uh, they, would, they would come over, and while we are having band practice, they would have a six-pack of beer, and, and when they were done, they'd just leave the cans on the windowsill in the, the bedroom, and I'd scoop them up and throw them in the trash can. And uh, one day, a brand-new believer came over to my house, and he didn't say anything while he was there, but he noticed, a, he noticed like a six-pack of empty cans on the top of my trash can. Well, who do you think he thought drank those? The next day at work he was he was very kind about it, but he said, Hey, I'm just I'm just as bothering me and it really I don't know what to do with this. I, I know you sing in the choir at your church and, and and you know you've been a Christian for a while, but I I I wouldn't think you'd be a drinker that way. And of course I, oh no, 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 no. You know, so I I want to make sure he knew that. And so here's what I did. My brother's not a Christian, and so I'm not gonna try to make him you know, don't bring your beer here, but here's what I told them, you, you're going to drink your beer at my house, you scoop your cans up and you take them with you and get them off the property, because I don't want anybody to see them and, and be offended, be a weaker Christian to feel like I was setting that kind of example. Now that's just my personal conviction, that's the way I handled it back then. That's kind of what Paul is saying. I could have told the guy, that's none of your business what's in my trash can. Yeah, I guess I could have. He might have gone off the, I didn't drink those, but it's really none of your business how they got there. I could have been almost rude about it. But no, I, I want to be sensitive to a younger brother in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, do I want a weaker Christian to follow my pattern? It's the, it's the principle of example. Number eight, evangelism. Write that down. There's your word. Here's your question. Will it lead others to Christ? Your passage is Colossians chapter 4 Verse 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Now, as I restrict my freedom, am I doing it with the view of winning someone to Christ? Showing him a different life. Showing him something that he doesn't often see in the world, a purity, an honesty, an integrity, a love. What I'm doing I want to make sure that I do it so that somebody who is not a believer would look and go, there's no difference between between Frank and my Uncle Bob, who's a sot. He he tells the same filthy jokes my uncle does. I I don't don't want to be thought that way. I want to do whatever I do, and you do too, to live in such a way, walking in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time, seasoning my speech with grace, seasoned it with salt, that I may know how to give an answer to any man. So I restrict my freedom to do that. That's the principle of evangelism. They Listen, the, the world will, will see what you do long before they will listen to what you say, right? You can have Christian music playing on the radio and be living in such a way that they go, boy, there's, a, there's something wrong here, they're not, they're not matching. So you need to, to think about the example, that's, that's the principle of evangelism. Principle nine, emulation. Emulation. There's your word. Here's your question. Will it be consistent with Christ-likeness? Would Jesus do this? Would Jesus say that? Would Jesus behave this way? Lord, what's your will for my life in this area? Well, what do you think Jesus would do? What do you think Jesus would say? How do you think Jesus would respond? How do you, what do you think Jesus would say? Right? First John 2, 6, here's your passage. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he, that is Jesus, walked. If you say you belong to Christ, then you ought to live like Christ lived. And so you ask yourself this question, would Christ do this? And if you can honestly say he would not do that, he would not take that, he would not respond that way, he would not ever post something like that. I heard somebody go, "Mm." I just got close to home. I'm going to back up and talk about that for a while. I'm, apparently, I'm getting home. Now, you ask yourself that. Would, would Jesus do this? Would he say this? Would he post this? Would he respond to that post this way? See, I have a friend. He's been a friend of mine since I was a teenager. Love the guy. Loved the guy today. Went to church with him for years. But I, I, I would look at his some of the things he posted, and you would never know he had a relationship with Christ Hateful, mean. Oh, it's just wow, where is the spirit of this? <laughs> Don't do that. If you, unless you think that's the way Jesus would do it. And then maybe you need to study a little more on Jesusology. <laughs> Let's get the last. Principle number 10. Write down the word exaltation. And you, here's your question Will it glorify God? Now I know, obviously, all ten of these principles that you you find some overlap. But basically, this one here is kind of the overarching one. You ask yourself, will this glorify God? Your passage is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's just sort of the total covering principle, isn't it? If you forget the other nine, remember this one, it should cover those as well. If I say this, if I do this, if I post this, will Jesus our Lord be glorified? Will it exalt my King? Is my life going to give Him glory, right? Will this lift up His holy name? Will this bring honor to Him? Or as Paul wrote in Titus 2.10, will this adorn the doctrine of God in my life? Will he be glorified and honored and praised as a result of this? That's the principle of exaltation. Now, the point is, we can usually discern if we're walking in God's will by using those principles. Right? Will it be profitable me spiritually? Will it build me up? Will it slow me down? Will it bring me into bondage? Is it simply a covering for my sin? Will it place the lordship of Christ in will it replace the lordship of Christ in my life if I do this? Will it set a helpful example for others? Will it lead others to Christ? Will it be like Jesus? And lastly, will it glorify God? This is how you discern the will of God with ease. Right? So think about those. Stand with me. We're going to close in prayer. Father, it is our desire that you teach us your will. But Father, I know in my own heart that it requires that we have a pattern of obedience. We never obey you perfectly, Lord. You know we are but dust. And that's why your mercies are new every day. But Lord, it is our desire that the direction of our life would be growing in obedience To you, doing what we already know, so that, Lord, when it comes to those times in our life where we're trying to get some discernment, we can at least have some principles to to, to repeat and, and ask ourselves some questions to help us get through the haze of not knowing. We don't believe, Lord, for a moment that you're trying to make it difficult, but, Lord, I believe you want us to be serious about it. I thank you for these here today. I trust, God, that they have been edified challenged perhaps convicted but your spirit lord wants you wants us to change precept upon precept line upon line as isaiah said here a little there a little you're working change into our lives you're you're growing us into more christ likeness so help us lord if we walk out those doors to live in such a way that the unsaved world is drawn to Christ, not repelled. They have enough reasons given to them to write off Christianity. We as your people here don't want to give them yet another reason to say no to Jesus. So help us to live in such a way that you're honored and that people are drawn to Christ. We love you, Lord. We love this day. It's one you've made. As we leave this place, be with us. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Have a good and godly day.